Now, the word normal is a loaded word. It means something slightly different or even perhaps entirely different for each of us. Right now, we're all instinctively defining the word normal in our head, even as I speak. And so when I say our normal everyday life, we all have a different idea of what I mean. And we'll get there. But before we dive into that, I want to take a brief bird's eye view of where we've been so far this semester. How many of you guys have enjoyed the practical application of Jesus that we've been talking about this semester? Woo-hoo! Calista enjoys it. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, too. <coughs> and Rachel, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this semester we've been talking about things like living in community, having authentic friendships, keeping the Sabbath, prayer, giving, Bible study. And these are all good things. These are all things that should be the outworking of a heart truly devoted to Jesus. Yep. These are the things that should be reflected in the lives of people who call themselves Christians. But I do want us to be very careful because you can do the right thing for the wrong motive. We know this to be true. We can be praying and worshiping and studying the Bible and giving and fasting and all of these right things and still be far from God. We know the Pharisees are a perfect example of this. If you've ever even opened to the Gospels at all and read any of those red letters, you've probably seen Jesus call out the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They prayed the longest prayers, they had the Bible memorized, they gave the most money to the church, they fasted regularly, they kept the Sabbath holy, they did all the things that we've been talking about to the highest level, to the umpteenth degree, yet Jesus continually called them out because he saw right to their heart. Jesus saw why they did the things they did and whom they were really doing them for. You see, our motive is the key. Our motive is the key to everything that we do. That's why we repeat that phrase. Why? Do you do the things you do, and who are you doing them for? You see, motive sanctifies or defiles any action. Motive sanctifies or defiles any action. I can play soccer on Monday night for Jesus, or I can play soccer on Monday night for myself. I can play board games with my small group because I like board games and I'm a nerd, or I can play board games for Jesus because I'm trying to cultivate a group of people to get off their phones and actually talk to one another and maybe have some critical thinking skills applied because... It's probably good for all of us. So you see, motive can sanctify or defile any action. I can pray for myself in the wrong. I can pray for, like the Pharisees did, out in front of everyone the longest prayers possible. Anything that we do can be either sanctified or defiled by our motive. So I want us to keep that in mind as we go through these different topics this semester. That should be the undercurrent. Why am I doing these things and who am I doing them for? The Pharisees, in this case, they were utterly devoted to themselves but not to God. Their hearts were turned inward, not upward. Hmm. So how do we get our hearts rightly oriented in devotion to God so we can do these things as an outflow of our hearts being truly focused on Jesus? And I think the best way to look at this is through a parable. Now, this parable is actually real. It happened to me. (laughs) This isn't just a story. When I was a child, I grew up just in a suburb of Chicago. Shut down. Yeah, we got one, one, two. Uh, We had a split-level ranch house, okay? You guys know what I mean? We had a great backyard, front yard to play in. And I was a little boy, though. This this backyard was my domain. This was my realm, my kingdom. Like, we we had a grill. We had a little stone back porch. Megan remembers this. We had a swing set. We had some tall, what, oak trees, right? Some acorns being thrown down from above because the squirrels like to throw them at us. Acorns from above. That's a good band name. So. Yeah, no. <laughs> Writing it down. Track of that, should write Writing that it down. down. Um, oh yeah. Uh, okay. Um, we had the yeah, we had a swing set. We had those pine trees in the back that created like a little kind of secret area to play in. One time, I found like a dead squirrel being eaten by like maggots, and I was like, "Look at this, so cool!" And my parents were like, "Yeah, so cool." Kicked the outside, like, "Don't touch that child." 
so I try to remember these things when my own son probably finds a cool dead squirrel in the backyard. And I tell him, I won't tell him that he's stupid, I'll just say that's so cool as I kick it swiftly away. <laughs> um, but at the very edge of my kingdom, at the very edge of my realm, lay like a small hill, probably much more than this, but at the edge of this hill was a, a raspberry bush. Now I was about four years old, and I remember seeing that bush for the first time and thinking, that looks like food. It looks like fruit. And this was absurd to me. You might think this is stupid, but I remember I'm four years old, okay? Aww. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this is a picture of me and my cousin Megan <laughs> and uh, another kid. So His name is Palmasetti. He's a real person. It's fine. Um, but that's that wonderful backyard back there. And beyond the edge of that, beyond somebody with 80s, 90s hairdo there, uh, some aunt or uncle, probably an aunt, um, but you never know, is the raspberry bush at the edge of our domain. And I remember seeing this for the first time and being like, that's literally food. Like, that's, I can eat that. Like, and, and I did, of course I did. You're four years old, you're gonna, you're curious. And I remember going back to tell my family, like, oh, this crazy thing that I discovered. And they were mildly impressed. Uh, I don't recall exactly, but I mean, they're like, yeah, it's, that's how food works, Ryan. Um, and I'm telling you, you couldn't get me to eat fruit inside my house. Even better fruit, like GMO fruit, like all that kind of stuff. But outside my house, I'm going to eat those wild raspberries every time, you know? Because there's something special about it. It's something magical. And on the rare occasion we hit our baseball, you know, too far to the edge of that, I would just go retrieve it from our, you know, neighboring kingdom, and I'd go pick a few of those wild raspberries. And... From then on, I'd often find myself, yeah, sneaking out there to try to just snatch a handful of berries. Because something in me saw them and recognized them as, like, beautiful and magical. It was really so overwhelmingly exciting to me to find them, to discover them. But here's the thing. They weren't really all that impressive in and of themselves, right? It was, it was just a bush in my backyard. That bush has since been torn down, so a multi-million dollar mansion could be placed upon it. My mom did take me to watch the destruction of our house for like nostalgic purposes for her, but for me it was semi-traumatizing as a child <laughs> to watch my home just be demolished so that we could like take a brick home and be like, that's so cool. You know, so cool, mom. <laughs> so cool. Mm. She did that? Uh, but, uh, but for some reason, I'm telling you, literally a quarter of a century later, about this raspberry bush. <laughs> now why is that? As I'm recalling this story from my childhood, <coughs> from simpler, more innocent times, I, I bet that some of you, even now, are recalling some fond memory that you have of the park that you played in, the river you swam in, the grandma's house at Christmas time, that one game that you loved, or that book that really spoke to you. Each of us here has that nostalgic memory that like, we look through rose-colored lenses and we said, man, I wish, if we're honest with ourselves, maybe yeah. we say, I wish I could go back to that yeah. time. Maybe I could go back and visit, maybe some of us really even long to stay there because our present might not be so exciting, might not be so wondrous. And why do you have that longing? Why do I have that longing? And I believe that it's because I've lost my sense of normal. I believe that we've perhaps lost our sense of what normal is. And again, we've got to define it, we'll get there. But you see, as a child, it used to be normal for me to be amazed by the everyday engagements of life, something as simple as discovering fruit growing in a bush in my backyard was exhilarating. It was wondrous. And going to the park and having a picnic brought delight. Feeding the ducks at the river brought forth wonder and laughter. 
But as G.K. Chesterton reminds me, I have sinned and grown old. I've seen many, many raspberries since then. Literally, yes, at the store. I mean, my kid eats some every day. But here I mean metaphorically. I've seen many raspberries since. Raspberries aren't any less prevalent in my life. I've just turned my eyes away from seeing their splendor. I've fallen into a pattern that is typical. And as a result, the wonder of God's creation has oftentimes become harder for me to see. Yeah. We can call it cynicism. We can call it becoming jaded. We can just call it growing up. But I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. yeah. I don't think that's the way that normal should be. Yeah. See, there's a difference between something being normal and typical. We think that what we have is normal because it's normal to us. It's what we live in. But it is not normal compared to the book of Acts or compared to the early church or our heroes of the faith that we've talked about before. Yeah. What we live in is just merely typical of American Christianity, of Western thought, of the 21st century, of the generation that we are, or whatever you want to adhere it to. It's typical, but it isn't normal. God didn't intend for it to be this way. God didn't intend for me to lose the luster of the raspberries, to forget about them, to not see them, to close my eyes willingly away from them sometimes even. So how do we recapture that wonder? How do we discover a new normal And I think that's what we've really been trying to accomplish together all semester. We want to practice living in the presence of God. And out of that will come prayer, worship, Bible study, and all of the good things we've discussed thus far. But just so we don't go and put the cart before the horse and try just doing all these things for God, we need to set our foundation first. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When it comes to laying down our foundation, I believe it's always the best idea to look to the life of Jesus. Yeah. So let's pick up his story on the day of his execution as he's hanging on the cross next to a criminal. We're going to pick up in Luke 23, verse 42. It'll be on the screen. Then he, the criminal, said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, if you're like me, as I read Jesus' response, You've probably inserted something like the word heaven in the place of paradise. And we're not entirely wrong in doing so. But it is important to note that Jesus did not say to the criminal, today you'll be with me in heaven. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now that word paradise in English isn't even a translation from the Greek. It's literally writing the Greek word paradesos in English. Because in English we don't end words ASOS, EOS, like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's not even a translation. So we're not even losing anything there. You don't have to do a word study or anything. It's, it's pretty clear. So that word paradesos in the Greek, what does that mean? Very clearly, very evidently, it's the Greek word for garden. No question, no. Well, sometimes it's used, it's the Greek word for garden. About 200 years before Jesus, there were a bunch of really, really smart Jewish scholars. They knew Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. These guys translated all of the Hebrew Bible into Greek because that was the language of the day. And every time they came across the word garden in the Old Testament, they used the Greek word paradesos. The Hebrew word is gone. All of these words mean garden. So what Jesus is saying to the criminal as they're dying is, I'll see you in the garden later today. I'll see you in the garden later today. Now, if you're a Jewish man raised on the Hebrew Bible and going to synagogue, it 
you would hear the word garden and immediately think of the Garden of Eden. That would be the only garden that would make any sense in context here. So why does Jesus say, as he's dying, to someone else who's also dying, hey, we're going to go hang out and meet up in the Garden of Eden later today? That seems like an anachronism. That seems like it doesn't make any sense. What could that possibly mean? The reason why there's only one garden is that because Jesus is referring to the foundation of the biblical story. I know Scroggins isn't here, but I'm going to put on my Scroggins hat and my glasses. I don't wear a hat. I've got the beard. Um, sorry, Katie. <laughs> I'm going to make fun of him. I love him. Okay, cool. I have the approval. <clears throat> That's dangerous. This Garden of Eden, this Genesis story, as we know it, is found on pages one and two of the beginning of the Hebrew Bible. It'll be up on the screen here as we look at the inception of the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter two. Verse four says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Okay. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. So this garden is clearly a place. It's a place, it's real. And regardless of how you choose to interpret the creation narratives, what everyone agrees on is that this is a story set in the past. Yeah. It's in the book called The Beginning. It's Genesis, okay? It's not a band of Phil Collins, but it's the beginning. This is the only garden that Jesus could possibly be referring to. It existed in the past, but Jesus seems to imagine as the kind of place where you can meet up later today with someone when you're both dead. Yeah. Seems, seems very odd to me. So here's the puzzle. When is paradise? When is paradise? Is it in the past, like the beginning with the Garden of Eden? Is it in the future, like Jesus and the criminals' immediate future later that afternoon? That's what Jesus seems to think, and he's often right, I would say. The plot then thickens, though, because if you turn from the beginning of the Bible to the very end, and we're going to fly all over it tonight, to like the last few pages of the Bible, the last few paragraphs, in the famous scenes in Revelation 21, we have John seeing lots of stuff, but we're just going to talk about the simpler ones to talk about. In, John, or in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any seed. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So John sees two things, new sky, new land, the holy city coming down. We know that this is a parallel to Genesis as well. But let's look to the next chapter to see what else he witnesses. Revelation 22, 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and the lamb down in the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, that same tree from the original garden, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So there's that garden again, but this time it's different. This time we're not just talking like the future for Jesus and the criminal later in the afternoon. We're talking like the future future, like the cosmic future. Okay, these are apocalyptic writings. It means the unveiling. This is a thing that's not yet to come, not yet, not yet, not yet to come. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So, again, if I ask my question, when is paradise? Is it in the past in the Garden of Eden? 
Is it in the future, like Jesus' future later that afternoon? Or is it in the future, future? And to make the puzzle more complete, there's not all your options. There's a door, number four. <laughs> Monty Hall says, let's turn back to Paul speaking in 2 Corinthians 12 to see what he saw. Yeah. Again, we're flying all over the place, but there's a purpose. 2 Corinthians 12, Apostle Paul says, Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to the visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. So this is Paul recalling something that happened to him 14 years ago. Third heaven, don't know what that means. We're going to skip it for now. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. But God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. So Paul here clearly had a vision 14 years ago. The other part is less clear. But for us to say, Paul had this vision, and he calls it heaven and paradise in the same passage, talking about the same place. And he's telling of something that was clearly taking place in the present for him. This was happening in front of his very eyes. He was presently witnessing paradise. Yeah. So again, one last time, when is paradise? Is it in the past? Is it in the present? Is it in the future? Is it in the future future? And this is a genuine question. Like if you look up the word paradise in the Bible, this is what you get. This is this is where we're at. Yeah. Now I do hope that you have a deep instinct within you that the answer to this question, when is paradise, past, present, future, 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 is simply yes. Porque no los cuatros. Yes. When is paradise? Yes. Now, I'm not sure why, and I'm not fully sure why you may feel that way, but I think that's what we're supposed to take away from this. I think that's what the whole meta-narrative of Scripture, these are some isolated examples, there are plenty more, is supposed to get us to start thinking towards. Hmm. I'm using vague language on purpose. It's a vague topic. So let's keep digging. We're on the very last pages of the Bible in Revelation a minute ago, but now let's turn to the beginning of Revelation, the beginning of the end, kind of. In John's book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 8. Revelation 1, 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. There's a lot there. Uh, We're not going to get to any of that. Was on the island of Patmos. Because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's in exile to this Grecian island. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And later in the passage, we can see that he's speaking to Jesus. He sees Jesus in all of his majesty and splendor. But here's the thing. Jesus was, sorry, John was on the island of Patmos. And he was in the spirit. And then he was in the heavenly temple where he meets a human figure on fire, dressed like a high priest in the temple, but he's not in the temple of Jerusalem. In the very next chapter of Revelation, Jesus tells John to write to the church of Ephesus, and he tells them if they overcome, they can eat of the tree of life in paradise. The tree of life in paradise was in the Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Eden is in the past, and it's going to be in the future, but it hasn't happened yet. But if the church in Ephesus overcomes in the present, then they can eat of the tree of life presently. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> That's a lot. 
And it seems odd. It seems odd to me, and I think it's supposed to, because we don't think necessarily the right way yet. Yeah. But we can, and we will. At the very least, we can take away from this that Jesus, John, Paul, the biblical authors, have a really, really different way of seeing reality than many of us do, and certainly how people in our culture see reality. Yeah, that's right. They wouldn't be writing these things unless they were either crazy or they saw reality better than we do. And the Bible paradise is apparently an image that can be described by lots of different kinds of imagery, like temples or mountaintops or gardens. But paradise is also a way of describing something that is fundamental to how Jesus and the biblical authors saw reality. It transcends space and time. This reality is not just the foundation that undergirds all of our perceptible reality. It's actually more real than anything else. If you've read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, you understand his allegory describing something that is heavenly, that is more real than our earthly examples. It transcends our four perceptible dimensions. It's, it's indescribable even using spatial language because it isn't seemingly contained by space or time. I can't say that paradise or heaven is up there or I felt it that way because it's beyond that. And the reason that this is more real than anything is because paradise is not just a place or a time. It's a person. Yeah. Wow. Paradise is a person. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Wow. That's good. Remember what Jesus said when he said, you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus talks to those in Ephesus who overcome, and he says, you will be with me to eat of the tree of life. The contingency is being with Jesus. Yeah, that's right. And then you get to experience paradise. Yeah. So when we're talking about paradise, we're really talking about a person who is the eternal now. He's a person who is the perpetual present. And this is how Jesus saw the world. This is how the biblical authors, the apostles, the prophets saw the world yeah. differently than we do. But as a follower of Jesus, this is the way that I want to see the world. I want to start practicing his presence and living in a new normal because I know that it's possible. Yeah. This isn't just some fairy tale, but this is a real way to live life. Yeah. And it takes time to train myself to think this way. This, that's okay. These are habits that we've been forming. We're discussing these semester habits like prayer and worship and giving, and it takes time. We need to be okay not instantly being a level 30 Christian or whatever you want to call it. We need to be willing to be bad at something and then get better because yeah. Jesus is worth it. Yeah, that's right. And maybe this is so basic for you, but this has been profound in my life lately as I've been trying to find new ways to see Jesus. I want to see the raspberries again. Mm. Like I want to see them again. And I want a taste of their sweetness in all that I do. Mm. And because of this, you can be in the past, you can be in the present, you can be in the future or the future future. You can be on a Greek island of Patmos. You can be in my backyard in 1996. You can be in your dorm or your apartment and all you are is just one moment away from tasting the raspberries. The raspberries are everywhere, my friends. In fact, there's never been a moment in your life that wasn't being upheld by the wonder and majesty of raspberries, of Jesus. He is central to all. Paradise is the person. It's the person of Jesus. Yeah. God, his Holy Spirit. It can be better than this. Yeah. I want to encourage you today. Jesus has come to give us life and life abundant. In a garden, there's never a starvation. There's, ne there's always enough. And that's what Jesus wants for you. 
God wants that for all of us. He wants to elevate our level of normal to what it was always intended to be in the Garden of Eden before sin entered. And he walked in the cool of the garden with his people. And it was beautiful and it was perfect. So the answer to the question of when is paradise, past, present, future, 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 if the answer is yes, that invokes a deeper, more interesting question to me of where is paradise? Where is John when he's having this experience? He's on the island of Patmos. At least that's where he starts. So in order to help us answer that question of where, where is paradise? I want us to turn back to the beginning of the Bible again. Genesis chapter 28. We're going to meet up with a guy named Jacob. We're kind of flying all of our scripture. And again, I'm doing that for two reasons. One, I believe these passages are pertinent. But two, it's to help drive home the fact that Jesus is on every page of scripture. Yeah. Paradise is a person and he exists at all times. And we're about to see, spoiler alert, at all places. He's the eternal now. Now in this context, Jacob and his mom have just finished scheming up a plan to lie and cheat their brother and father out of his blessing and their firstborn inheritance. Did not make eye contact. And so Jacob has to flee his homeland because his brother is trying to murder him. A good reason to flee your homeland. Picking up in verse 10, it says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. He's at a place where heaven and earth are meeting. This is key. The angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you'll spread out to the west and to the east to the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. It's pretty dope. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. He names the place Bethel. He makes it a sacred place. Now, if you notice, Jacob went to sleep, and then he was transported to paradise. John in Revelation was in the spirit and ended up in paradise. This altered state of consciousness is important. We'll see in a bit here. I think the interesting thing about this passage, or one of the many interesting things, is that it's not as if Jacob went to a place that was dedicated, sacred, and holy. It says he was leaving Beersheba, headed to Haran, and he was somewhere in between. This area, if you know geographically, is just the desert. It's worse than San Angelo. I'm going to be real. It's even more desolate than that. So they didn't have reverse osmosis water or whatever that. There's just no water. So he's in a desolate place. He's a lying, cheating thief at this moment. And he meets with God. Yeah. Interesting. The place itself wasn't sacred, but he met with God. His encounter with God is what made the place sacred. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have to go to church to have a sacred experience. There's an example right here. There's many examples through scripture. <coughs> it's Jacob's encounter with paradise as a person that makes the place holy. Yeah. yeah. For myself, an example of this was when I was a freshman in college. I was just beginning to walk with God. My small group leader's apartment was in Cornerstone Apartment number 8. Jake Barry. Jake Berry. We called it the Ocho because it was number eight because we're really creative at St. Houston State. Eat them up. Eat them up, cats. <coughs> it's a degree. Um, and I got it. But something happened there in that apartment, in that place, 
I truly met with God. Yeah. And then apartment, we prayed for ourselves, our small groups, our friends who did not know Jesus. And then apartment, we worshiped. We sang songs to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We read the Bible. But there in that very normal place, cornerstone apartment number eight, we entered into paradise. The raspberries were all around us and we ate abundantly. It was our encounters in paradise with the person of Jesus that made that place holy and sacred and dedicated unto the Lord. Even so much so that later, the next year, they had moved out of that apartment and new people were moving in. It was a set of girls who I do not know and I will never know. And they were moving into their apartment. There's no furniture or anything left. or not, not there yet. And I go walk up to them and I say, hey, can I just like, can I like look inside the apartment for just like a second? I, it means a lot to me. It's like a, my friends and I used to, and they were kinder than maybe I would have been. They're like, sure, weirdo guy, go look in this empty apartment that isn't. And I walked in that apartment, and I'm telling you, it was palpable. The presence of God was there. The place was sacred to me. The Lord met me there and continued to meet me there. The place was holy. It's just a stupid apartment. But God met me there. And that is all that matters. My hope and prayer here is that each of us can encounter paradise now, here, with our Heavenly Father, who, who desires to rewrite our life's script to change our trajectory maybe from where it's going right now and to elevate us to a new normal where we can live daily in his holy presence. I've got one last biblical example to hammer home the idea of where paradise is. Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel chapter 8. It says, In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came on me there. I looked and saw a figure like that of a man. Before we even go further, it says, he saw the hand of the sovereign Lord came upon him. Again, altered state of consciousness here. He's describing the Holy Spirit. He's just doing so in Old Testament language, okay? So we had John in the Spirit. We have Jacob asleep. We have Ezekiel in the presence of the Holy Spirit. The hand of God is touching, okay? From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire. Same person that Jacob saw, that John saw. And from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. In the Hebrew, the word is tzitzi. He pulls him up by the hair of his head and just takes him through the roof, apparently. Transcends space and time. The spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven. And in the visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court, where the idol that provokes jealousy stood. So the spirit of God brings him flies him to the center of Jerusalem and shows him where the sin is so that he can more pinpoint it as a prophet. So where is paradise? On an island? In a field? In a house? In the Ocho apartment? Do you guys see how fundamentally differently the biblical authors saw reality? Yeah. He's describing what happened to him. He was near to God with the Holy Spirit and he encountered paradise while sitting, having dinner at Cain's. He met with God and entered paradise. It's possible. It's possible. Notice the common denominator in all these experiences is that people's altered states of consciousness. Isn't that interesting? I think it's because we need to rewrite the way that we're thinking. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will know God's will, his holy, pleasing, and perfect will. It's not on the screen, but we need to rewrite the way that we think 
so that we can be near to God, so that we can enter paradise. And the way that we do that is through our daily living, is through practicing the presence of God, is through experiencing Him and His Holy Spirit. Yeah. yeah. And it's possible. That's what I want to make sure we know. Yeah, that's right. It's possible, and it's what God wants for us. Yeah. As we close, I want us to honestly examine our hearts here. Is there a sense of wonder that we once had? Did we once see raspberries everywhere and now we don't? Do we long for those simpler childhood days of less responsibilities and less oh, nostalgia? Man, it, it hit hard, hits hard. But I think that's just kind of a reminder. You know how pain is a reminder that something needs to be changed? I think nostalgia is the same way. Mm. We're looking back to our childhood. We're looking back to a simpler time, a different time when we were not yet so stained by sin. Maybe not so jaded, maybe not so cynical, maybe not so tired all the time, maybe not so busy. I think that longing is good and healthy if we understand it and redirect it towards God. Yeah. Towards knowing that we can have a new normal. We can live an elevated, abundant life with Jesus. I know that I want to eat more raspberries. I want to first acknowledge them more and then partake in them more. The key to us being in that right state of consciousness where we can see paradise in the person of Jesus and all that we do is so key that we are in that right state of mind. We need to rewrite the wrong way of thinking that life has thrown at us. And so many of us have so many different wounds, so many different times we've been hurt in life and we put our walls up and that creates a difficulty in seeing the raspberries around us. But Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And we think, man, if I just put another wall up, hmm. Jesus is the great physician. He will heal our hearts and give us a new normal. The people in all these stories that we read were open to a reality that is utterly foreign to us. But as a result of being near to God, they got to see the true vision of Jesus. In each of the, one of these stories, they saw the figure of Yahweh or of Jesus as he truly exists and is in all of his majesty and splendor. And that's what I want to see. We can live in paradise now because paradise is a person. We can practice being in his presence and it will transform everything. We can have a new normal if we only open our eyes to Jesus and draw near to him. So I want us to examine our hearts and be honest. If we feel like we can grow in practicing being in his presence, I exhort you to come forward to the altar. Meet him here as John met him on Patmos, as Jacob met him in a field, as Ezekiel met him in his house, as I met him in a stupid apartment in Huntsville, Texas. Come, ask him to reveal himself to you in his true majesty and splendor. His deepest desire is to do so, to reveal more of his love to his children, but you must come with humble hearts before him. The altars are open.